Hey, Rachel, what's the deal with Viper? Dude, Miles, what isn't the deal with Viper? She's like a grab bag of supervillains. She's mostly a Wolverine villain, though, right? What? No, no, she's from Hydra originally. She was an orphan raised with a bunch of other girls by Commander Kraken, and she fought Captain America a bunch. Later on, she faked her own death. As one does. And then killed the original Viper and took his place as leader of the Serpent Squad. For a while, she had a bunch of doubles of herself called the Pit Vipers, but that didn't really last. So what is the Wolverine connection? That was a later thing. I think the first time she fought Wolverine was actually when she was messing up his wedding in Uncanny X-Men. She was palling around with the Silver Samurai at that point. Mariko Yoshida's disgraced brother. Yeah, yeah, that guy. So anyway, later on, she took over Madripoor and she blackmailed Wolverine into marrying her so she can consolidate control of the country, but then he later blackmailed her back into divorcing him. Does she work with Hydra anymore? Not really. She teamed up with the Red Skull once a while back. If you're following the Axis lead up, he's the Nazi skeleton who stole Professor X's brain and is using it to build a concentration camp for mutants. But it didn't really go well. What happened? Oh, he thought her plans were financially unsound. What? I'm Rachel Adderton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 26th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. This week, we're back with a newly formed New Mutants as they make the jump from graphic novel to ongoing series. So, we're going to be looking at the first six issues of the New Mutants ongoing, and I want to take a second to look at where these sit within greater continuity, because we've looked at the stuff that's going on concurrently around them fairly recently, the Brood Saga, and we talked about that in episode 20. And from last issue, the Wolverine miniseries, this stuff is all going to be going on at the same time. So at this point, then, Marvel was concurrently publishing three X-Books. Right. Well, one of them was a miniseries, but two ongoing X-Books. And the Wolverine stuff isn't directly relevant, but the Brood Saga ties very, very closely with the first arc of New Mutants. So at this point, the X-Men are in space. And as far as he knows, they're dead. And all of the X-Men and Professor X on Earth are infested with brood embryos. So brood embryos, those are like the sort of alien xenomorph kind of things that get inside your body and then take you over and kill you? Right, and they gradually take you over psychically and then you transform physically into one of the brood. This process is already starting with an Xavier. The New Mutants don't know this. He doesn't really know this. We know this. Readers who were following these series along at the time would be gradually working it out along with the rest of the characters. If they were also following Uncanny, they might pick it up a little faster, but otherwise, that's a twist. Yeah, it's not super subtle. I mean, we've seen Xavier have all these weird visions of a thing inside him that looks kind of like a brood, but it's also not explicitly stated. So it would be one of those, huh, I wonder if that's what's going on. That's probably what's going on kind of things. I kind of think of this as proto-New Mutants because it's... It's the first couple arcs, and it's really sort of the series getting its footing. The characters are very fully formed, but the tone of the book really, really isn't. We'll talk about this later in the episode, but it almost feels like we have them trying, how about this thing? Okay, no. How about this thing? How about this thing? And eventually it will find its voice, most specifically when the artist Bill Sienkiewicz comes on later, but earlier than that to a degree story-wise. Sienkiewicz is kind of the peak era of New Mutants. But I feel like it really kind of establishes its tone in the arc that follows the ones we're going to talk about today, which is the Nova Roma arc. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Nova Roma is not the most exciting concept, but that's when New Mutants really starts feeling like New Mutants. Meanwhile, let's look at who the New Mutants are and where they come from. As far as Xavier knows, the X-Men are currently dead in space, and he's been getting calls about new mutants who are being found, and Moira McTaggart strong-armed him into forming a team. This all happened in the New Mutants graphic novel. Yeah, Moira McTaggart, as you probably remember, is Xavier's ex-partner and scientist colleague who hangs out in Scotland and has a truly amazing accent and jumpsuit. But let's really quickly recap 
who we've got on the team right now and what their powers are. So first we have Danielle Moonstar. She's currently called Psyche. She will later be called Mirage. As with calling Sprite Shadowcat by accident, we're probably going to slip and call her Mirage at some point. So yeah, Psyche and Mirage, same person. She's uh, 16 years old, uh, Native American, Cheyenne specifically. And she has sort of telepathic illusion powers that lets her manifest people's greatest fears or desires. To what extent her powers are telepathic varies. She's definitely got some telepathy. Mostly at this point, specifically, she can establish telepathic links with animals, which also allows her to connect telepathically to the one shapeshifter on the team. Next up, we've got Sam Guthrie, Cannonball. Sam, um, I love Sam. Sam and Sam and Danny are eventually going to end up co-leaders of the New Mutants, but not yet. Sam is 16. He is not invulnerable when he is blasting. And he will tell you at every opportunity. He will. He is basically a human rocket. He's 16. He's from Kentucky. He is a super sincere, super nice kid. Like, I want to hang out with him and buy him beers and have him make silly jokes as he gets drunk. It would be wonderful. Yeah, I mean, my notes for this bio just say the best kid in all caps. After that, we have Shan Koi Man, Karma. She's 19 years old. She's currently the team leader. She can telepathically possess people. Next up, we have Roberto or Bobby DaCosta, Sunspot. He is Brazilian. He is, I think, 13 or 14. He can absorb solar energy and take on a, a sort of Sunspot-looking form in which he has super strength. And that gives him a little bit of protection from damage as well, although that's limited. It's it's also, it's interesting, it's a really, really temporary state. He burns out of it very, very quickly. Yeah, I love Bobby. He's really, I guess you could call him full of himself, but he's so damn charming about it that I kind of have to immediately forgive him. Well, he's egotistical in the way that 13 and 14 year olds are. He has a lot of characteristics that would be super obnoxious in an adult character that because he's a teenager are very much part of a logical becoming a person. Lastly, we have Rain Sinclair. She is Wolfsbane, and she's basically a werewolf. Like, she can turn into a wolf, or be a girl, or whatever. Well, she's a shapeshifter. She doesn't just shift at the full moon. She can do this at will. She's very much a kid. She's also grown up basically being told she's a demon in a church, isolated from the world. So she's very uh, naive and innocent, and also has a lot of self-hatred going on based on her crappy upbringing. Yeah, she's never seen a movie. She's really sort of obsessed with the idea that she's fundamentally sinful as a mutant, and just as herself, and really struggling to reconcile those. And that's going to be a lot of her development across this series. Something that I noticed when I was reading through these for the episode is that almost all of them tie into other series or have major guest stars. Like, we think of this as an ongoing series, but it really didn't start standing alone till issue seven, did it? Not really. I mean, issue four to a degree is that way. But, um, you know, we see this in other series as well. Like in modern series, if you want to sell a book and your concern is not going to sell, get Spider-Man in there, get Wolverine in there. You know, some character who's already super established and maybe having them on the cover will get people to buy. But it's not just guest stars. I mean, I can't imagine reading the Brood arc of this without reading or having read the Brood saga. It would be a completely different story. It wouldn't make a ton of sense. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be the assumption that new readers of The New Mutants are going to be pretty familiar with what's going on in X-Men and probably actually buying that book already. Yeah, there's a lot of exposition as well, but that doesn't account for everything. At the same time, weirdly, while it's doing these very crossovery stories, Claremont starts to seed in bits of what are going to become extremely important New Mutants storylines. Yeah, and I mean, if you've been listening to our show for a while, you know we talk a lot about the Chris Claremont long game, and that's very much the case here. Like, he'll have a plot point that's going to come up a year and a half later, and he'll start mentioning it really early on, just little things here and there. And there's enough foreshadowing that most of the plot developments, they really seem planned rather than just thrown in at the last minute. And there's no story for which that's the case. And man, a number of you have asked if we're going to cover this we definitely are, is the Demon Bear Saga, which the first seeds of that are actually in these earliest issues. Oh yeah, this is some of my favorite art ever in an X-Book, and the writing matches it really well. It's just beautiful. Plus, it's all about Daniel Moonstar, and she's freaking badass. I love that character. Really, at this point, New Mutants is about Daniel Moonstar. It's a team book, but to the extent that it has a protagonist, at least initially, it's she. 
So yeah, how about we just sort of dive into where the series starts off? Okay, yeah, the graphic novel introduced us to the kids, and New Mutants number one introduces the kids to the school. In the graphic novel, the team was assembled, and at the very end, Sam Guthrie, who, for reasons that were not very well thought out, had been working for the Hellfire Club, very politely, ends up joining the group and is welcomed. And so, by the time this issue starts, they're all in the black and yellow. They're all sort of starting classes. Professor Xavier is really adamant that this is not going to be a superhero team. And that's interesting to me, because you mentioned they're all in the black and yellow. The first thing he does is put them in the original X-Men field uniforms and then go, but you're not a superhero team. This is a school. It's just a school where we happen to wear spandex. Just don't worry about it. It's normal. Every school does this, I promise. And that cognitive dissonance, I think, is something that persists through the series and is one of the more interesting parts of the way Xavier is characterized. It seems to me like he really wants to believe that he's not grooming these kids as a superhero team. But in fact, a lot of what he says and a lot of what he does are exactly that. I mean, he's talking early on. He introduces them to the danger room. He shows them an advanced thing. He said, well, this is an advanced X-Men training sequence. You won't be doing this for a while yet. How does that work anyway, Rachel? I mean, you train as a mutant and you're learning how to control the fact that you blast forward like a cannonball. Like, how do you use that in chemistry or math or accountancy? You go to PE in, in normal school, right? Right, right. It's sort of along the lines of that. It's, you know, a well-balanced education. Although Xavier mentions in this actually that, you know, they have to train to the level of elite professional athletes. And an interesting shift from X-Men is that he's actually brought in a wider faculty to help them do that, specifically Stevie Hunter. Yeah. Now, we've seen Stevie Hunter before as Kitty Pride's dance instructor. Um, She's a former prima ballerina herself who hurt her leg, and so now she just teaches. And she has actually always been one of my favorite X-Men kind of side characters just because she's not a superhero. She's just a normal person who really wants to help out kids. That's what she's passionate about. That seems significant in terms of Xavier, at least, you know, making some token effort to make this actually be a school is that primary co-teacher he's brought in isn't a mutant, isn't a superhero, her background isn't in training superheroes. She really acts, I think, as much like a, a mentor helping these kids get through adolescence as she does an instructor for physical training or, or anything else. Like, she's really just there to kind of be the grown-up that they can trust and get along with since Professor Xavier is this scary eyebrow jerk. As I think the original X-Men, and particularly Cyclops, demonstrate aptly and ably on an ongoing basis, Professor Xavier is not a good role model to grow up with. The issue opens or close to opens with her giving Shanna a haircut in the sink and them almost, you know, slumber party-like talking and getting to know each other and her very much bonding with the team and being kind of the team parent and big sister as well as a teacher. So I read New Mutants for the first time. I mean, it had had already been out for many years, but I read it for the first time when I was probably around the age of the characters in it, you know, in my my very early teens. And I just sort of wanted to hang out with them. Like, I wanted that to be my life, hanging out with all these very diverse, strange, fun kids who also had big problems we could talk about with and grownups we could trust and crazy adventures. Like, that seemed so freaking appealing. And I think Stevie Hunter's presence, it was kind of a big part of that. The original X-Men were very, very isolated and continue to be to some extent, although that's less the case under Claremont than it was in the Silver Age. The New Mutants are actually integrated into their larger community. Like, they are friends with kids from the local high school. They have them over and there are awkward slumber party sitcom, everyone hide the weird shit going on at the Xavier School. (laughs) Of course, the weird shit going on at the Xavier School is way weirder than, you know, somebody like peeing the bed or whatever at a normal slumber party. dragons and stuff. I don't know for sure, but I expect that X-Men Evolution was taking a pretty strong from that dynamic. Oh yeah, I'll totally buy that. I mean, X-Men as a school, I think has worked, I'm going to go ahead and say it's worked best ever in New Mutants, especially early to mid-New Mutants. 
as a school and as a group, there are immediate character conflicts. And those conflicts originally arise specifically around Danielle Moonstar because her powers are acutely personal. She can create illusory manifestations of people's greatest fears or greatest desires. At this point, mostly just greatest fears, which is a really intimate and personal thing to be able to pull out of someone's head and especially to be able to pull out of someone's head by accident. Right. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's getting along all right, but then she inadvertently brings forward into a visual manifestation what happened to Shan. And you may recall from when we first talked about the New Mutants, Shan Koi Man's backstory is terrible she's been through a horrible horrible shit like murder and rape and sibling death and just awful things yeah and hanging out getting a haircut with the kids you're just starting to bond with who don't really know you very well and suddenly having an illusion of you and your mother getting raped by pirates in the middle of the room is understandably disconcerting and she freaks out and jumps danny yeah, this kind of is what leads into Danny being the, like you said, Rachel, kind of the protagonist of this arc and of the series for a while in general, because it's all about her dealing with her powers, dealing with her interpersonal relationships as they get messed with by the manifestations of her powers. And dealing with that balance of anger and fear, because she's a character who's very aggressive and pushes back very hard against both her peers and authority figures. I was thinking, and I wrote down in my notes that she's kind of the Wolverine of this bunch, but she's a very, very much younger and less self-assured Wolverine. This kid's 16 years old and really hasn't been around people very much. I mean, since her father died, she'd been living pretty much on her own on a mountain. Well, with her grandfather. Her best friend was definitely a panther. And she mentions, actually, that her powers had driven all of her friends away. But yeah, so she's been through some shit, and I can see this being especially disappointing. Like, hey, I thought I was having a fresh start. Oh, crap, it's happening again. God damn it. She's going to spend the next couple issues, a lot of them, off on her own. Part of why what Danny does shakes things up so much is that Chen is a character who has had a horrible life, but she doesn't bring it up a lot. She's someone whose relationship to her past is complicated, and it's not that she functions as entirely divorced from it, so much as that she's very self-contained. Yeah, so we have this tension of, you know, the these interpersonal conflicts. We also have the kind of looming shadow of the fact that this school used to be inhabited by some people who are now dead in space, as far as anyone knows. Well, and the people whom it's heavily insinuated, even as Xavier claims otherwise, the New Mutants are ultimately being trained to replace, and those are the dead X-Men. Yeah, and now Xavier doesn't talk about them. The New Mutants will bring them up, and he's like, I don't want to talk about it. Don't worry about it. That's not relevant. And so we see, for instance, um. Danny exploring the X-Mansion. She she sees Kitty's room. She uh, heads up into the attic and sees this room full of plants that desperately need to be watered. It's, it's Storm's attic, you know, that she's had for so long. Goes ahead and just spends a few hours watering them, and it's actually a really poignant, bittersweet scene. Like, even though I know that, obviously, not only do the X-Men end up fine, but they're fine at the time. Well, okay, they're having a terrible life at the time, but, you know, they're going to be okay. They're a little infested with Brood at the time. Um, only mostly dead. <laughs> you hit on kind of an important point with the X-Men. This arc... This first arc especially, but really Danny's story throughout is very, very much about ghosts. Ones who are genuine and present and ones that are just remembered and the ways those intersect and interact. That's going to be a running motif with that character throughout the series, but really very, very much so in these first three issues. So speaking of grooming them to replace the X-Men, the first thing that Xavier does with them as a team is introduce them to our good and dear old friend, the danger room. Ah, the room full of knives that every modern mansion comes equipped with. Right, let's throw the teens in. Uh, hey guys, welcome to the school. Shove. What is happening? Why is there a crusher here? Hope you survive the experience. He makes it clear that they're just going to be using the danger room basically as a gym most of the time. 
But just for fun and old time's sake, he decides they're all going to do the let's try to cross the danger room challenge. So I got to bring up my favorite iteration of the let's try to cross the danger room challenge, which is actually from Days of Future Past. It's the first time um, Kitty is in there. And uh, Professor Xavier's made this super elaborate obstacle course that's not going to hurt her, but that, you know, will challenge her a lot. Except the thing is, Kitty's power is to go intangible, and she literally just closes her eyes and runs straight through it and through the far wall. And the X-Men, like, just burst into laughter. None of these kids get that much luck, and Professor Xavier has obviously learned from experience. Everyone fails, and while they do, Danny is getting more and more scared. She hasn't run it yet. Brief aside, because it's one of my favorite sunspot lines is in this sequence. Oh, yeah, yeah. At one point, he's wondering if Professor Xavier is reading all their minds as they're training, and he says, if he reads my mind, I hope my thoughts make him blush. Because literally the only two things that sunspot Spot thinks about are naked ladies and Magnum PI. There are worse combinations to have in the yeah, world. Yeah, no, I'm just Sunspot, say. Sunspot is delightful. <laughs> Never change Bobby DaCosta. Everyone fails, and finally Danny just freaks out and runs away. She basically convinces herself that if she tries to go into the danger room, she's going to die. She just flees. Yeah, and this was, for me, it was kind of a, a surprising moment when I first read it. I'm like, wait, these people are the heroes, and she's running away? Does that make her a coward? But honestly, no, it doesn't. It just makes her a really three-dimensional character. I like that these characters are so flawed from the get-go and still so sympathetic. Danny, we first saw, is really sort of brash and very, very confrontational. In this arc, we're starting to see more of where that comes from, not in ways that make her, you know, oh, she's secretly weak, she needs to be saved, but just, oh, she's a lot more complex than those initial traits. And we see that with every character. I mean, we talked about, you know, Bobby and how he's saucy and he's kind of macho, but he's also like very much a kid and he's really innocent in a lot of ways and he's really sort of needy in some very kid ways too and we see that you know Sam who's the sincere good guy is also just incredibly strong-willed like you know his major thing is he can't turn which is this great metaphor like he can only blast straight at this point right just sort of barrel headlong into whatever yeah he's just an unstoppable force which is a really interesting contrast with his politeness or or rain who's very shy and very sort of perpetually kind of ashamed and and nervous but also is sort of one of the most curious and playful members of the team when she starts to come out of her shell and all of those characteristics coexist it's not that they go from point a to point b and you know danny goes from too confrontational and brash to self-assured to being feelingsy and you know embracing her pain no she stays really brash and self-assured and confrontational it's just that there's the other stuff too and i love that and that's really true of every single one of the new mutants what's that old quote um do i contradict myself then i contradict myself i am legion i contain multitudes except in this case legion can mean a couple of different things yeah the lowercase legion we'll get to uppercase legion in a couple more episodes danny eventually goes back to the danger room to face her fears and she gets through the program but as she's coming out, she suddenly gets shoved back in. Well, with, she gets zapped with some kind of energy weapon. Yeah. And then she's back in the danger room and all the safeties are off. And she's like, wait, what happened? What happened? What happened? And she's in the advanced X-Men training program. Only, yeah, the safeties are off. And then suddenly she comes face to face with something that wasn't in the program. That being a brood queen. And of course, we as readers are like, holy shit, those are going on in X-Men. This is really the first real indication that, yes, the brood are definitely back on Earth and have definitely infested the mansion or Xavier or something. And she's the only one that can see it, and so it's coming after her. And she's the only one there, because she's told them that she wants to be left alone. And so she is not with the rest of the New Mutants when they go to the mall. I love X-Men mall stories. Like, one of my favorite stories ever is Ladies' Night. Uh, Ladies' Night. That's from the Australia arc. It's where they meet Jubilee, and it's got um, M-Squad. Oh, yeah, the sort of cut-rate anti-mutant Ghostbusters. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but X-Men mall stories are almost universally delightful. This is no exception. You know, they're going to the mall, and everyone's marveling at the stuff they're not familiar with, especially Rain. Yeah, Rain sees E.T and she gets really excited and she's never really seen a movie before she doesn't quite get that et is special effects and they have to explain that no no he's not actually a mutant kid like he's a little polyurethane dude 
Yeah, and, and she cries, but I mean, to be fair, if you're a teenager seeing E.T., of course you're going to cry. Like, I don't think you're human if you don't, uh, or mutant as the case may be. And they run into these other teenagers, and it looks like it's going to be sort of a, a rumble, you know, a sharks and jets kind of thing. And because of course, they're like, oh, you're from the Xavier school, you know, that snooty private school. Kids from there never come out. And they're like, oh, no, nah, it's cool. And yeah, despite Roberto, you know, puffing out his chest initially, because of course he does, they start making friends. And I love some of the dialogue here. Yeah, they make friends super fast. And one of them is this girl who's just totally in love with Rain's hair, because Rain has this sort of fuzzy, spiky, very short hair, and excitedly asks her, are you punk or new wave? And Rain replies, I'm Scott? And it's adorable. And she's like, well, no fool, and that go for the rest of you? And at this point, Bobby steps forward. Hardly. Sam is from the States, I'm Brazilian, and Shan is from Vietnam. We're international terrorists. And then, appropriately, government men from the government show up and attack them, because that's what happens at malls. Or that's what happens these days if you say the word terrorist. The NSA just sort of what dives in through whatever skylights are nearby, or if there aren't any skylights, they construct some skylights real quick so they can then dive yeah, through them. Yeah, this, but this was the early 80s when you could bring your assault weapons and cigarettes and do lines of coke off stewardesses on, on airplanes. So there are a bunch of government dudes attacking. And then Sentinels. Do you guys remember Sentinels? My favorite thing about the Sentinels is they always explain what they're doing as they're doing it. I like the idea of if, if they were just a little bit more human. Sentinel 325 Delta is having a bad day. Sometimes Sentinel 325 Delta wonders if there's any point to life or if anyone will ever love him. Oh, man. This issue also has some really great, very specifically dated technology. Stevie tries to call back and, you know, the record call isn't on. Well, my favorite data technology that probably was never actually real is the Sentinel's Frigia Beam. I want a seen on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, order now within the next six minutes and you'll be able to get the Frigia Beam for just six monthly installments of $39.99. Giant killer robots not included. <laughs> um, what's the deal with these Sentinels? Because every generation of Sentinels we've seen has come from somewhere else. There were the original ones that Boulevard Trask made. There were the Larry Trask Sentinels who Cyclops sent off to fight the sun. Hint, there uh, were, they lost. Yeah. Um, there were the laying sentinels, in, which were in space. These sentinels are actually part of Project Wide Awake, and this is being uh, headed by a dude named Henry Peter Gyrick. And Sebastian Shaw, who you may recall as Black King of the Hellfire Club. Shaw is a mutant. Like the rest of the Hellfire Club inner circle, he basically plays all sides. He's not really interested in mutant-human relationships, except as they have the potential to amass power for the Hellfire Club. Now, Henry Peter Gyrick, I kind of love. He's been around for a long time. He was initially in the Avengers. And he's basically a Walter Peck, um, if you've seen Ghostbusters. Of course you've seen Ghostbusters. If you haven't seen Ghostbusters, pause this episode right now. Go watch Ghostbusters. Come back. New Mutants will still be around when you're done. And then, like, flick a rubber band at your wrist a few times as punishment for not having seen Ghostbusters. No, don't do that, because you've just watched it. Eat ice cream. Reward yourself. Well, anyway, point being, he totally is, because he's one of those dudes, like, he's a bureaucrat, and whenever he's a, kind of a dick about things, you can be like, well, you're a total dick, but at the same time, you kind of have a good point. I mean, you know, sometimes rules are a good thing. I get where you're coming from. Yeah, like another cinematic Walter, he's not wrong. He's just an asshole. You're not wrong, Gyrick. You're just an asshole. His angle on mutants is very pragmatic, national security type stuff. He's got no personal fear of mutants. He reminds me a little bit of very early Senator Kelly when the stuff he's saying is creepy from a human rights standpoint, but you can see how someone could rationalize themselves into those beliefs. Shaw's angle is somewhat different. Yeah, so his deal is, you know, like you were saying, he's basically just concerned with amassing power. He doesn't give a shit about mutant rights or any national security or anything like that. So he figures, all right, I like this idea, send the Sentinels after these kids, freak them out more and more until they're so paranoid of humans that they have to come to me once I kill Xavier. Now we know about this because while he's talking to Gyrick in a cutaway, he literally just drops out of the conversation for three straight 
panels of thought balloons about his evil plan. Meanwhile, at the mall, the teenagers take out the Sentinels and they do it with the aid of Colonel Michael Rossi, who is a brand new supporting character. There are a lot of them in this series. But unlike Stevie, who's original to X-Men and has been mostly in the X-Universe, Colonel Rossi is actually imported from another book. He's the uh, ex of Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel at the time, Captain Marvel these days. And New Mutants is basically setting him up as their shitty low-rent Peter Corbeau. A low-rent Peter Corbeau? Yeah, no theme music for this fucker. He has not earned it. You're not allowed to do that. That's like having a bad cover of Stairway to Heaven. It's just offensive. Don't have a low-rent Peter Corbeau. Peter Corbeau is amazing. Are we comparing Peter Corbeau to Stairway to Heaven? proudly and gladly. I'll stand behind that. So Colonel Rossi shows up at the mall. Did you see that guy's outfit, by the way? Well, you're getting very mean girl about this, Miles. Maybe, but seriously, it's like this sort of blue jumpsuit with a big, wide yellow girdle and like a matching yellow choker. Like, what kind of job does he have? What kind of job is that the uniform for? I assume that he's a stripper in Vault 13. Okay, well, now that we've solved that mystery. So they take out the Sentinels and they head back to the mansion where they find and rescue Danny, who is unconscious in the danger room. She starts having all these nightmares. They may or may not be real. About the new mutants being killed and this thing that might be this large demon bear that she stabs. And it seems like it's a dream, but then there's actually blood or something on her knife. And she goes to try to talk to Professor Xavier and overhears him calling Moira McTaggart in Scotland. Yeah, and he's basically saying, hey, I think my student's having this breakdown. I think she's kind of crazy. We should really evaluate her. And he's being really condemnatory about the whole thing. And she's like, dude, just freaking mind scanner. Why did you even call me? What are you doing? You had one job. Moira McTaggart telling Professor X to get his shit together is something I really don't ever get tired of. But Danny works out that there's something really wrong with Professor Xavier and that it's something linked to the brood. And she comes up with one of my favorite sort of weird little tactical plots, which is she tells Karma and they have to find a way to get the other new mutants to meet with them without Professor Xavier finding out. And the way they do it is brilliant. One by one, Shan possesses other members of the team and has them write notes to themselves. Sam Cannonball is shaving and then he blacks out for a second. And when he wakes up, there's instructions about where to go written in shaving cream on the mirror in his handwriting. That's just really clever. So they meet at the boathouse. They talk about this. They have to deal with it. But when they leave, everything has gone to shit. Everything is suddenly this warped system of tunnels, this strange alien landscape. Now, we've seen this before. We totally have, um, especially given the assumption that the readers have been reading on Kenny X-Men at the time. This is looking broody as hell. And not broody like David Borean as, but broody like the brood. Right. Normally, though, the brood can create illusions, but normally they only work on people who are infected with brood embryos. And as far as we know, the new mutants aren't. So how are they doing this? Okay, well, it uh, becomes pretty clear as the issue progresses, or rather it will once the big reveal happens. Xavier's got a brood embryo in him. That means we have the illusory powers of the brood, and we have one of the most powerful telepaths in history working together to do some terrible shit to a bunch of teenagers. Basically, the brood is possessing Professor X. Professor X is using Danny's powers to create these illusions. And Danny figures out that that's going on. Uh, she tries to get Karma to possess her. The Brood Queen kicks Karma out. She finally just gets Sam to punch her in the face and knock her out. And that pretty much works. Apologetically, because it's Sam. Yeah, the illusions all fade. What's really weird here is like Xavier, they meet up with him and he's like, oh yeah, I wasn't here because I was also looking for the monster. Over that way. You couldn't see me. I was behind a thing. 
But yeah, the story is actually not resolved in the New Mutants. The story that's been taking up the first three issues is resolved in Uncanny X-Men 167, which kind of feels like a cheat. I mean, like I said, I know they were assuming people were buying X-Men and New Mutants at the same time, but it's one of those, oh, really? You're just, you're going to do that? And actually, X-Men 167 is collected in the first classic New Mutants trade because of that. Oh, is um, it? That's a really good idea. Yeah, it's right. It's, it's just in the middle after New Mutants number three. And you can hear more about that as well as what the X-Men have been doing with the Brood in Space in episode 20, The Brood They Carried. Meanwhile, while this stuff's been going down, there has been action on Muir Island. I love Muir Island. That's where Moira McTaggart's hang out. Right now on Muir Island, there's Moira McTaggart, Sean Cassidy, Banshee. Banshee. And um, Ileana Rasputin, who will eventually be codenamed Magic. Yeah, Colossus's um, little sister. And a woman named Gabrielle Holler gets in touch with Moira. Now, we've met Gabrielle Holler before. Specifically, we've seen her in a flashback in X-Men 161 about Xavier and the time when he was living in Israel after World War II. Gabrielle was a Holocaust victim who was catatonic, whose therapist he basically was, who he, he gradually drew out of her shell and into what may be the least ethical of the many unethical romantic relationships of X-Men, all things considered. She comes tomorrow because she's having trouble with her kid. You know, he's a mutant and he's autistic and she doesn't give a lot of background. And Maura says, well, why are you coming to me about this? I am the science end of things. Xavier does the hands-on stuff. And Gabrielle says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to Xavier about this kid because this kid's his son. Dun, dun, dun. This is David Holler. Maura has mixed feelings about this. She also had a super dangerous mutant kid named Proteus. It did not end well. Colossus kind of had to punch him to death. Meanwhile, Ilyana is having a kind of a rough time. This is still a bit before the Magic miniseries is going to come out. What we know is that she was in limbo for the equivalent of, what, seven years? Seven years, yeah. During which time she aged from six to 13 and saw versions of the X-Men killed. Yeah, and so she's kind of standing on a cliff as the sun rises or sets. It's not clear. It's a still image. And she's kind of singing this hymn in honor of... That, that Storm taught her, I think, specifically. Yeah, in Limbo, in honor of Kitty's birthday. And we, the readers, are like, wait, but Kitty's fine. Well, and then we think, well, no, she doesn't know that. She's in space. She's apparently dead. And then Ilyana mentions to Banshee, no, no, there's also a version of her who's actually dead in Limbo. Well, or at least she thought bubbles it. Also, I do want to talk about how much I love Banshee in his sort of Muir Island context, because what he basically does is is a wise, slightly older gentleman and flirts in a filthy fashion with Moira at every opportunity, and I love him for it. So one of my favorite odd backbeat things in comics and in stories in general are when there are grown-ups and middle-aged adults who clearly are having sex off panel. Right, like the Golden Girls principle. Right, like the Golden Girls principle. And that's so much the case with Banshee and Moira. Like, they do the training thing, but they also just really like each other. And I still think that they're trying to breed a baby with the ultimate, like, monster Claremont accent. Oh, God, it would be completely unintelligible. I thought we decided a while ago that it would be Welsh. That may be the case. That's true. I love them as a couple. It's it's too bad everything goes to hell and they both die. So that's the first complete arc. And I want to take a second to talk a little bit about some transitions and some things that happen in this arc. The first of them is Professor X. So when we first meet Professor X in New Mutants, when the New Mutants first meet him, he's possessed by a brood queen. And one of the things we learn in this arc is that she actually prompted him to put together the team so that she'd have a new batch of potential hosts to infect. Right, exactly. So Xavier was... He was basically manipulated by this evil force inside him into doing a thing he might or might not have done anyway. You know, with the brood, something that we've seen, we see with the X-Men too, is that that brood infestation amplifies parts of people's personalities more than it entirely takes them over. And that's definitely the case with Xavier. He gets more petty, more secretive, more authoritarian when he's taken over by the brood. But he's still very much a believable Charles Xavier, both to the students who don't know him and to those of us who are coming in having read a bunch of X-Men. 
The other thing I want to talk about is the art. Bob McLeod is the artist on the first four issues of New Mutants, and he tends to get forgotten in the wake, especially of Sienkiewicz's run, because Sienkiewicz is so distinctive. I really, really like McLeod's art, and there are some things in particular about it that I think are just incredibly strong and deserve to be touched on very directly. Yeah, like I'm noticing the characters, they look really, really different. You wouldn't think that would be so hard, but in comics, you actually don't see a lot of that. You see the sexy male model and the sexy female model, and they have different costumes and different hair colors. Especially when you have a lot of characters who are all around the same age and multiple ones of the same gender, you end up with characters who are disambiguated by outfits and hairstyles a lot, and that is really not the case with the New Mutants. They all look really different, and they all look really realistically their own ages. I don't need clothes and hair to tell these guys apart, and it's not even just features. They have different facial expressions. They have different posture. Another thing that I love very much, you mentioned, you know, the characters looking kind of model-y. Right, yeah. Something that's common, particularly among both women and men in superhero comics, but more amplified in women, they're always very pretty, and they're also always very put together. Right, like everybody's always got their makeup on, even if they've just been getting beaten up in a prison camp for like the last five right. years. Right, you don't really see Jean Grey not looking like her hair is blow-dried. And that's not the case with the New Mutants. They don't look like they've spent an hour putting themselves together every morning. They look the way people look. And it's something that I noticed specifically when the artist shifted to Sal Bashimo with issue five, and that's really lost. I completely agree, and I really dig that. I also enjoy that Bob McCloud is capable of drawing a teenaged character naked, in this case Danny swimming, without super sexualizing the scene at all. That's awesome. Yeah, there's there's a page-long sequence involving a 16-year-old girl in casual nudity that's completely non-sexual and non-sexualized. That is remarkable. Mm-hmm. in a superhero comic. That's, I mean, that's remarkable in any comic, but it's especially remarkable in a superhero comic, and I think worth calling out. So, the brood are out of the way. And next, we have an issue that I think of as the very special episode. Yeah, I'll see if I can just blaze through this real quick. It's called Who's Scaring Stevie? But that's even an after-school special title. Jesus. It is, and the basic premise is that Stevie Hunter has been getting these kind of stalkery calls being super creepy, and the New Mutants find out about it and decide, well, okay, we really care about this person. Let's go ahead and see if we can resolve this whole thing, because this sucks. She doesn't feel safe. And Xavier's response to this is kind of hilarious. What he basically says is, all right, you can do that. Let's make a lesson plan out of it. Submit your strategy to me, and I will grade it, and then you can do it or not. So this is Xavier post-brood, and so he's not influenced by the alien creature that wants to eat them all anymore, but he's still Xavier, so of course that's happening. Yeah, and he still doesn't really understand how you raise kids to not be a superhero team. Like, that concept is just fundamentally lost on this man. So they track the calls to be coming from the local high school, and they go lurk outside a high school dance. And I I gotta say, the other thing about this issue is... Everything in it is turned to 11. This issue, in a lot of ways, is about disproportionate response. Oh, yeah. So they finally uh, find who's been making the calls, and it's this kid in Stevie's dance class. And so Rain, like, jumps through the window and turns into a wolf and chases him, which is, is exactly— through a, school, through a high school dance. Exactly what you want to do in a crowded room with not that many exits. And I, I want to point out that this strategy specifically comes, as will a number of future New Mutants strategies, from Roberto basically saying, okay, what would Magnum P.I. do? Because that is what he does when faced with any kind of crisis. You know it's really not a bad philosophy. I love the New Mutants thing with Magnum P.I. It just it keeps going, too. So anyway, um, they end up chasing him out, and this fleeing kid, Peter Bristow, he jumps in a car and almost kills somebody. Sam saves these pedestrians and manages to turn for the first time, because otherwise he would crash into a building. Go, Sam! Significant character moment! And I love what he says afterward. Hey, little darling, don't cry. Your mama just fainted. She'll be fine. Me, I feel like cheering. I saved y'all. I didn't smash anything in the process. I finally did something right! 
Oh, Sam Guthrie. Oh, Sam. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the spirit of everything in this issue being disproportionate, Sunspot gets the kid out of his car and the, he throws the car out of the way and straight into what turns out to be a warehouse full of TNT for no apparent goddamn reason. It's just there. Well, where else are you going to store your TNT? Yeah, I guess. So this kid is horribly abused by his parents. He equates that with love. He wants Stevie to like him. She doesn't beat him, therefore he thinks she hates him, and he freaks out. And this all comes out as Mirage uses her powers to kind of get, you know, the greatest fear, greatest desire, and it's super invasive, and he's really mad, but with this out in the open, you know, they call child services, etc. And rewrite a bunch of his mind. Uh, Well, yes, Xavier does erase the part with the new mutants, as is his way. Yeah, man, the lesson of this very special issue are so wildly problematic. There's a lot of cycle of abuse stuff that is really, really statistically and clinically iffy. And there's the way that they resolve it and the fact that they then go in and rewrite a bunch of this kid's memory. And just this whole issue makes me so uncomfortable and not in a good this is making me think ways, just more in a, oh, I I wish they'd gotten maybe like a couple consultants in this. Well, at the same time, we do see Xavier at the end. If you ever wish a justification for who and what and why you are, both as human beings and mutants, this is it. Not fighting villains or evil mutants, but simply helping people. And that is at least the philosophy that the book will try to follow, even as the new mutants get dragged into fake Rome and space and hell dimensions and that sort of thing. So we go from that somewhat dubious after-school special into one of the more profoundly baffling two-parters of New Mutants, featuring some of the more profoundly baffling guest stars. The New Mutants are at this sort of county fair thing, going around doing county fair stuff, being charming teenagers. All of a sudden, Bobby Sunspot gets super, super excited. And he gets super excited because he's seen three members of the world-famous Team America. Wait, wait, who are these guys? Like the the movie? No, no, not like the movie. I did some research online, but what I could find was really limited. Fortunately, however, I know someone who may be literally the only human being alive who actually has read all of the Team America comics, and that's Chris Sims. Chris, will you please explain Team America to us? For the love of God, please. Team America is amazing. In the 1980s, Marvel had a tendency of picking up a bunch of licenses on very short-term bases, largely because of the success that they'd had with books like G.I. Joe, ROM Space Knight, Transformers. It felt like they were looking for the next big hit in terms of licensed toy comics. So you got stuff like... US-1, which was based on a remote-controlled truck, and you got <laughs> Team America, which was based on a line of action figures riding motorcycles. And I want to break in really quickly and say one thing that I did find is that the origin of the, those action figures, there were Evil Knievel action figures that were very, very successful, and then Evil Knievel got sent to prison for battery. And so the toy company that owned them freaked out and was like, we have to rebrand these. So they used the same molds, but they created this group of kind of identical repainted motorcyclists called Team America. And they're, they're the same molds as the original Evil Knievel action figures, just, you know, with 100% less domestic violence. So I guess you could say that uh, with these toys, batteries were not included. All right, I'm going to go. <laughs> uh, you guys have fun. No, much like Rom Space Knight, like when you take an Evil Knievel figure and repaint it, you have not done any work trying to figure out a backstory for these characters because you didn't need one when they were evil Knievel. So much like Rom Space Knight, most of the backstory of Team America, in fact, all of the backstory of Team America was created for Marvel Comics. And so they remained Marvel Comics characters even after the license was lost. All they had to do was change the name. Uh, They later became the Thunder Riders uh, and showed up in The Thing a couple times. The Thing actually joins the team. Uh, As for who is that team, well... There's a uh, former CIA agent named James McDonald who goes by the code name Honcho. <laughs> okay. 
There's a loner who's very Wolverine-esque, even has mutton chops. His name is El Lobo, or as they call him, Wolf, uh, (laughs) who is involved in one of the most upsetting instances of script and art not lining up. He dates a nine-year-old, right? Yes. Uh, There is a sequence in Team America where he is very clearly meant to see a a sheltered but of age lady uh, sitting in the back of a car, like the daughter of two rich people. In the art, whoever was drawing it, I forget who did it, clearly read Daughter of Rich People and drew a nine-year-old. So there's a story where Wolf takes a nine-year-old girl out of the back of her parents' limousine, puts her on the back of her motorcycle, has a fun day at the fair with her, and then drops her off very disheveled at her house. So this is basically the plot of Act One of Into the Woods. Yeah, that actually made it through, by the way. Oh, <laughs> nobody, no. nobody thought that they should edit that issue. There's Are You Ready?, who is uh, a rich kid whose actual name is Winthrop Rome Jr. But he changes but it to Are You Ready? And, and the name of his band, in, in keeping with Are You Ready, was Rough Stuff, R-U-F-F-S-T-U-F-F. On the list of characters who I would like to see reimagined as like safer sex-themed superheroes, he's real near the top. <laughs> There's a former rodeo champion named Luke Merriweather, whose codename is Cowboy who makes his first appearance literally lassoing Honcho away from a young lady and informing her that Honcho is going to be busy for the rest of the night. (laughs) There's a lot of subjects in Team America. (laughs) Uh, And the final member of the team is their mechanic, whose name is Len Hibbs, who built their motorcycles and also lives in a Winnebago with his friend Georgiana. You might be asking yourself, why did these five people get together and form a motorcycle team? Well, as it turns out, they're all mutants. And in fact, they're all the same mutant. Wait, what? Uh, Five men have the mutant power to form a gestalt organism that has all of their motorcycle riding skills combined. That's a very Uh, specific power. That's like Silver Silver Samurai being able to only charge his katana. Wait, so what you're saying is there, there are five dudes whose superpower is that they can just create a sixth dude? Why don't they just get a sixth member? They actually don't create a sixth dude. They possess whoever is around. So they have to have a sixth member anyway. Why don't they just get one who's really good at motorcycles? Well, that's the twist, is that it's usually Georgiana, the uh, Lynn's girlfriend, but she's wearing a very bulky black outfit, so you can't tell that she is a woman. Uh, But she is not the only one who gets possessed by the spirit of the Marauder. Obviously, the Marauder has the dirt biking abilities of five people, uh, (laughs) which makes the Marauder a challenge even for Ghost Rider, comics' greatest dirt bike rider. Tell Uh, me there was a crossover. Oh, there was. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Iron Man, too. They they meet Iron Man. They meet Ghost Rider. And they also meet my favorite villain in Marvel Comics history. That's a tall order. I like Doctor Doom a lot. Uh, I like the Green Goblin a lot. I like Kingpin a lot. But if you ask me who my favorite villain in Marvel Comics history is, it's Elsie Carson. Elsie Carson? Oh, yes! Elsie Carson. The middle manager of Hydra. She is the person who I was thinking of who I really want to have in the the Harvey and Janet series someday. She is the Harvey and Janet of Team America. I'm immediately intrigued. See, the idea of, of Team America was that they were motorcycle stunt riders. So they were kind of in that same vague, nebulous Western area that you would get from, say, the Incredible Hulk TV show or the Rockford Files. And I know Rockford Files is in is in Los Angeles, but occasionally he'll drive to some vague Western town and have an adventure. Now, the idea is that all the superheroes are in Manhattan, as we all know. Manhattan or, in your case, Westchester. 
Right, right. Which is 20 it's miles outside of Manhattan. <laughs> you have these global organizations like Hydra, like AIM, uh, like the Secret Empire, that are really focused on dealing with these things in one tiny part of the country. But they're still worldwide organizations. So they have offices in other places that never fight superheroes. That's where Elsie Carson works. She is not a Nazi. She joined Hydra because they have health care. That's literally <laughs> her motivation. I have so much sympathy for her immediately. Like, I want to hear about her, her kids, her, her partner. Again, she goes on holiday with Harvey and Janet. She's totally the Harvey and Janet of Team America. Unfortunately, Team America runs afoul of Hydra, and the Supreme Hydra shows up on her video screen in her office and orders them to take care of Team America. So this woman who is a pacifist who joined a terrorist organization <laughs> for the benefits then has to fight these five mutants who well, are actually a single mutant. I want to go back a step because it's not just that they ran afoul of Hydra. Hydra basically created these guys, right? Maybe. It's been a while since I've read the earlier issues of Team America. Well, according to my very reliable source, Dr. Internet, Hydra employed or kidnapped or something all of their mothers and somehow messed with their genetics in hopes that they would produce a generation of super babies, which is weirdly close to the plot of this novel that I read in like fifth grade called The Girl with the Silver Eyes that I really loved. But um, it totally is. You're but right. There were, there were very few motorcycles in that book. To its detriment, I suspect. I know, right? There's also a super advanced motorcycle involved in their origin that Hydra is developing. Is that the one that the Marauder rides? Uh, I believe it is, actually. Uh, Wait, they does, developed this super motorcycle and then uh, Team America ends up stealing it. And they and rather than going, well, I guess we should just build one other motorcycle. Uh, in the first issue, they send six tanks, eight helicopters, two dozen plainclothes and uniformed foot soldiers and a Zeppelin armed with an anti-gravity tractor beam <laughs> to recover one motorcycle. They Weapons really sold like separately. It. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, they never made a, a playset of the Zeppelin with the tractor beam. Oh, man, I, I would buy that. I would buy that so hard. Um, that actually, brings up a question about the Marauder. He just possesses who's, whoever's around. Do they just like lug around an extra motorcycle just in case is like leaving a cup out for Elijah or something? <laughs> That's a different type of Jewish tradition than I'm familiar with. <laughs> I believe, and again, it's been a while since I've read them. Uh, I wrote about them all the way back in 2006, uh, and I think that was the last time I actually read Team America. Although there are things in that comic that tend to stick with you. <laughs> yes. I believe what happens is when they are the Marauder, when they form the Marauder, they all pass out. And so whoever gets possessed by the Marauder is possessed and compelled to go to wherever they have stashed the Marauder's gear and his motorcycle whenever they are done. So the Marauder, whenever the Marauder finishes a task, will just drive to the next town and hide his motorcycle and or her motorcycle and gear. Here's a question. Now, they're going to show up in New Mutants. And initially, we're only going to see three of them. Um, are you ready? Cowboy and El Lobo are the only ones who are around. Honcho and Wrench aren't there. And the Marauder still shows up. And I think they're calling him the Dark Rider, which is, I guess is to be disambiguated from the Black Rider of the Dark is Rising. Maybe? Probably. I mean, he's a good guy, so. But there are only three of them there. Can can smaller groups of them summon him traditionally? Or is this, this a new evolution of their powers? I think what happened was that there were only three toys initially. There was a, a red one, a white one, and a blue one. <laughs> because, you know, Team America. Because it was Team America. So uh, I think the uh, Len was not originally part of the team. He was just the mechanic. Honcho, I think, ends up going back to the CIA at the end of Team America because they, they clear their names or whatever, <laughs> whatever their motivation is meant to be. Motivation uh, when complete. they show up in the thing later and the thing joins the team briefly, 
riding a giant Kirby-esque three-wheeled motorcycle. Thank God. Uh, there are also only two of them. But if you want to read an amazing comic about Ben Grimm doing some motorcycle stunt riding, that issue of the thing is pretty top-notch. I've never wanted anything more. All right, so thank you, Chris, for your introduction to Team America. With that explained to us, I think we're ready to explain the rest of their story in New Mutants to you. Thanks, Chris. We will see you soon. And if we ever have any more Team America questions, we're going to show up in your room in the middle of the night just watching. For how long? You'll never know. Well, no. No, what'll happen is we'll both worry really hard and then a third person will show up in your room in the middle of the night in a black motorcycle helmet. <laughs> uh, please don't do that. <laughs> now, uh, quick question. Does Ulysses Solomon Archer, a.k.a. US Ace, a.k.a. US One, ever show up in an X-Men comic? I don't know. Not in one that we've gotten to yet, but given the rate at which guest stars are appearing in these, I would not be surprised. If nothing else, once we rate our comic with Peter Corbeau, Harvey, and Janet, we'll make sure that happens and, just and for you. And what's her name now? Oh, yes. and uh, Elsie Carson. Yes, and Elsie Carson. <laughs> the cast grows. Well, if US1 ever shows up, uh, please feel free to let me know. <laughs> we absolutely will. Right, take care, Chris. Thanks. So now that you know the secrets about Team America, what are they doing? Okay, so Team America is just hanging out at this fair. Well, three of them are. And all of a sudden, bad guys attack. And all of a sudden, Danny disappears. And we find out after the battle that apparently Danny has become the Black Rider, at which point she's immediately kidnapped by everybody's favorite Madame Hydra on-again, off-again person, Viper. No one explains how this works, by the way. Someone just shows up and they go, the Dark Rider. And then the helmet comes off after he crashes and it's Danny and Viper kidnaps her. There's not a lot of explanation happening in this arc. This arc really makes very little sense. Thankfully, it's salvaged by the presence of Team America, who we love very, very much suddenly. They become the main characters of the series briefly. Professor Xavier is like, oh shit, more mutants. Um, I need to train them immediately and as my highest priority because otherwise their powers will be out of control. Well, specifically, the deal is that Viper and the Silver Samurai kidnap Danny and they're holding her hostage and they want Team America to get them some ambiguous crystal. Basically, Xavier says, all right, Team America, I need to train you like super hardcore because your powers are very dangerous. You teenagers go like eh, do teenager things or whatever. Eh, I don't know. I have to train these motorcycle guys to focus their power of creating another motorcycle guy. Nothing has ever been more important to me. I cannot stop being entertained by what could conceivably have been Professor Xavier's reasoning here. Like, I guess maybe technically their power is dangerous because sometimes it possesses a random bystander so does karma yeah i'm not gonna say this is the most logical arc of new mutants ever but thankfully the book really finds its voice after it's over team america does steal this crystal from as it turns out aim and the new mutants go and find danny and rescue her but what they do beforehand in tracking her down is they go well, find xavier tells them not to rescue her um that he's just gonna handle it with team america and they should go twiddle their thumbs and shan as their leader is like yeah Let's not do that because this is ridiculous and Xavier is uncharacteristically obsessed with motorcycle dudes. Obviously, we need to take matters into our own hands. Yeah, and so they go meet General Man, Shan's evil crime lord uncle, figuring, hey, he's got criminal contacts. He might know what's going on with Viper and actually threaten to kill him. He calls their bluff and rightly so. And so he basically gets Shan to commit to a year of servitude to him in exchange for this assistance, which she agrees to. This arc specifically is basically going to write Shan out of the book for a long time, which is a damn shame because she is one of those characters who is subtle but really fantastic and is just chronically underwritten and underused. Specifically because after the big conflict takes place, when Viper and Silver Samurai escape, they blow the place up and we find out that in between this issue and the next, Shan has apparently died. Yeah, she's gone. They just don't find her again. You know who is still around, though? Michael fucking Rossi. 
Well, that's a relief. Shitty backup Peter Corbeau. I resent this man so much for not being Peter Corbeau. I resent every human being I've ever met for not being Peter Corbeau. That's a reasonable attitude. So yeah, that's our first arc of New Mutants. It's a strange, uneven arc. It starts to get really good after this. At this point, though, it's just, well, it's got Team America. And what more can you really ask? Absolutely nothing. So um, I think we have time for a couple of brief questions. Let's do those real quick. All right. From Whiskered Men with Bombs on, I believe, Tumblr. It's a great name. I've decided to read the X-Men from the get-go, and I want to be thorough, but I also want to get the most coherent narrative. In regards to the Summers, you chose to go into depth with the Deadly Genesis retcon, but with Phoenix, you specifically chose to examine it with retcons removed. Which way do you suggest to go through the X-Men in order to have the most rewarding experience? Well, honestly, that kind of depends on what you're going for. If you just want to read a bunch of really good comics and get a feel for the X-Men, I think you can stick to some of the more well-regarded arcs and creative teams and storylines. You know, you got Joss Whedon, you got Grant Morrison, you have the early Claremont, uh, you have some, some of the really good miniseries like Magic. I think for most people, that's probably going to be the way to go, simply because reading through the entire history of a franchise with dozens and dozens of books is a little over the top, we're doing it, but we're us, and we're a little unhinged about that sort of thing. However, if you do want to do it, I would say going through it roughly in order, roughly concurrently, because the books cross over a lot. So reading, you know, maybe a 12-issue block of X-Men, a 12-issue block of New Mutants might have things make the most sense. There are two things I want to bring up, the first of which is that you can find chronological reading orders online. We talked about these some, and I don't remember the episode number, but the All Questions Spectacular, where you can find entire reading orders online. And I'll, I'll see if I can dig up that link, for the as mentioned, for this Another thing to bear in mind, and you you can also, if you Google the phrase chronological X-Men, you can find people who've put together torrent batches that put them all in order. We do not officially condone torrenting, but we do totally officially condone using the work of the people who've gone through and indexed these to give yourself a cogent reading order. And you sh- those are those are things that you can find just as as lists online. The order we go through is the order it makes the most sense to us to explain things in. It's not necessarily the order that makes the most sense to read things in. It's it's like we look for things like linked concepts and sort of longer term implications than I'd really recommend looking for if you're going through and just reading them to read them. Okay, so second question. Surly Eric asks, whom, in your opinion, is the most 90s X character that's since been the best redeemed? Discounting Deadpool right off the bat because, well, he needs to be discounted. I agree wholeheartedly. Under the premise that the 90s actually started in the mid to late 80s, I am going to absolutely and unquestionably go with Cable. You know, I would actually have to say the same thing. Cable started out as one of the worst comic book characters I've ever even heard of, and these days he's fascinating and compelling. I mean, you look at what Cy Spurrier's doing with him right now, you look at the run where he was sort of a messiah, there's some interesting stuff out there. For me, the stuff that redeems Cable and the things that make him most interesting come out of Messiah Complex and his relationship to Hope and the way that changes him as a character. He's been interesting before then, but I feel like he's really coalesced and really had a very compelling personality within the current and modern X-Universe for the first time. Okay, well... Well, this has been a long one, so we are most definitely out of time, so let's take it out. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. It is produced by Bobby Roberts, you can hear on the podcast's Welcome to That Whole Thing and Full of Sith. New episodes air every Sunday at rachelandmiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher. Check out rachelandmiles.com for visual companions to each episode, along with articles, art, video reviews, current X-Books, and much, much more. Those features and this show are made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron and taking a second to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. As you listen to this episode, Miles and I are on the floor of New York Comic Con busily recording the next one, which is going to feature show floor updates, creator interviews, and a lot more. We and our sleep deprivation, we'll see you then. (laughs) 